after the uproar ceased, remember there was the rioting there in the city of Ephesus and uh, Demetrius and others had said that uh, Paul was uh, going to hurt the, uh, the, sale, the sale of the gods there in the city of Ephesus. After that uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, there's the second time the word encouragement is used in verse 1 and verse 2. The word encouragement's already been used twice. He came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Okay, so imagine he's getting ready to get on a boat and he finds out the Jews have some plot against him, probably to throw him overboard while he's in the, at sea. And so he decides, oh, I think I'll just uh, take a different route to get there. So he returns through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, or excuse me, Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. They, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And remember, Luke, the doctor Luke, is writing the book of Acts, and so when he's using the word we, he very likely includes himself amongst this group of people. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus. And the, the words that are used to describe young man, Eutychus was probably between 9 and 12 years old, just a really young man. A young man named Eutychus was sitting at the window, and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away live and were not a little comforted. That phrase, not a little comforted, just so you know, that's the same word that's used in verse 1 and the same word that's used in verse 2 as encouraged. Okay, so not a little comforted means they were very encouraged. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus 
so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Father, help us now as we look into your word. I pray that you would give us hearts and minds that are just attentive. Spirit of God, would you come, please? You're already here, but would you give our hearts and minds the ability to to comprehend, to tune in, to pay attention to the words that we're going to look at this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, I'm not going to use this passage to preach a sermon on why you need to stay awake in church on Sunday morning. As long as you promise not to use this passage to tell me not to preach long sermons, right? It's kind of a kind of a give and take deal, right? I mean, here Paul preaches till midnight and then after the whole thing with Eutychus happens, apparently he starts preaching again and preaches until the sun comes up the next morning. I don't know. Um, kind of an interesting, We're going to talk about the details of that story here this morning. And, and I don't think the main point here in this passage is uh, Paul preached too long or uh, don't fall asleep um, in church on Sunday morning. I actually think there's uh, something even more profound that God's doing for us and in the church that has gathered here in Acts chapter 20. And uh, we've already seen it, and I pointed out the, the, uh, the word already three times in verse 1 and verse 2 and in verse 12. And that's the idea that God's people are profoundly encouraged when they gather together. God's people need God's people. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but the people that bother me the most are actually God's people. Yeah, I know. I get it. Me too. I've said it like, <laughs> that's right, amen. It's like family though, right? Your greatest joys come from your family and your greatest frustration comes from your family. This morning, we're going to talk about being encouraged by Christian community. Encouraged by Christian community. And the main point is this, Christian community has always been a source of gospel encouragement. Christian community has always been a source of gospel encouragement. Don't raise your hand. You don't have to answer out loud. But do you need encouragement? I mean, I think the absolutely assumed answer is, yeah, I, I, need, I need encouragement. You need encouragement. We need encouragement. Everybody has walked in here this morning, and as a friend of mine used to say, everybody's just two questions away from tears. Everybody's two questions away from crying. It just depends on which questions you get asked. But it only takes a couple of well-thought, well-timed, well-worded questions from the right friend, and you find yourself kind of undone. I think we need encouragement. There, there are a lot of things to be discouraged by. There are. There are a lot of things to be discouraged by. You can look at the television and be discouraged, and you can look at the mirror and be discouraged. It doesn't take much. Anywhere we look, we can find ways that life has disappointed or that we are inclined and tempted to think the wrong things. And what we see here this morning in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, we, we get several scenes from the early believers and how they interacted with each other. Now, there's some differences of opinion as to whether or not in Acts chapter 20 and starting in verse 7, whether or not this was 
an actual church service. I'm inclined to think that that is what this was that was happening there as the early church began to um, uh, move from the Sabbath being the day of worship to the first day of the week being the day of worship. I do think that that's what's happening here. But what we definitely see described for us in these verses here are several different ways in which Christians during the early church times were encouraged by each other. And so this morning we're going to look at how we can be encouraged by words. That's going to be point number one, we're encouraged by words. Secondly, we're encouraged by friendships. Thirdly, we're encouraged by feasting. And lastly, we're encouraged by remembering the resurrection. So let's start this morning by looking here, and we'll see all of these very clearly in this passage, how we can be encouraged when we gather together with other Christians. First of all, we're encouraged by words. In verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And so Paul is looking for ways to encourage with his words. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And if you look at the original language there, you, you look at the Greek uh, language there in verse 2, it actually is, it's, the description is, with much words encouragement. Like, there were many things that Paul said that encouraged, that encouraged the people of God. And then you look in verses 7 through 12, and you see that Paul has gathered with the brothers and sisters here, and his speech is a prolonged speech, and people stick around. I mean, the reason that Eutychus was there to fall out of the window at midnight is because he and probably his parents and many other people had gathered together to hear the words of Paul and be encouraged by them. We encourage each other with words. You know the song, um, Home, Home on the Range, right? Where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day. Well, the world that we live in uh, realistically, is a world that is full of discouraging words, right? I mean, whether it's a conversation with someone, a Facebook post from someone, a radio broadcast from someone, or even just the words in your own heart and mind. Do you know who you listen to more than you listen to anyone else? Yourself. You listen to you more than you listen to anyone else. It's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to have hearts and minds that are full of the right words so that we can preach to ourselves rather than listen to ourselves. We need an encouraging word. So every week as a church, we gather and we spend a significant amount of time giving our attention to words. I mean, we spend about an hour and a half every Sunday and we think about words together. We are, we are a language-heavy people. It's one of the things that actually is an indication that we've been created in the image of God. Right? God is a communicating God and we are communicating people and we listen to words. And we give attention when we gather on Sunday mornings, we give attention to the word as we sing it to each other. Trust and obey. Those are good words for us to live by this week. The, the words that we read in Joshua, where we see that our God is a promise-keeping God and we can take confidence in Him, those are the written words of God 
that we've given attention to this morning. I'm preaching the Word of God to you this morning, and so together we're giving attention to the preached Word of God. And before my sermon is over, I am going to make sure that we magnify the Son of God, who is the, He is the Word of God. We're encouraged by words, the written, spoken, and living Word of God. Do you find the Word of God to be encouraging? How much of it is in your life and in your heart and in your mind? I think some of us are hanging on to the Bible verses that we learned when we were the age of the kids that are in kid zone, and that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. One of the reasons I love, probably the main reason I love what we do with children's ministry on Wednesday night is the hundreds of Bible verses that they're going to learn through the years of being involved in children's ministry like that, right? I mean, that's, I love the fact that they're getting that ingrained into their hearts and ingrained in, into their minds. Most of the Bible verses that I have memorized today, I memorized before I was 12 years old. Even the ones that I have in my memory today. And I'm still trying to memorize the Scripture, but man, it's a whole lot harder now than it was when we were, you know, pre-20. Do you find the Word of God to be encouraging? Brothers and sisters, you can still be memorizing the Word of God, and more importantly, we need to be meditating on the Word of God. Listen to how the Word of God describes itself. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Does your soul need reviving? This morning, does your soul need reviving? Some of you are tired. Some of you are weary spiritually. Some of you are weak spiritually. Does your soul need to be revived? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you need wisdom? I raise both hands on that one. Yes. The Word of God makes the, the simple person wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That's what we're talking about this morning, the encouragement that comes from the Word. You can read on through Psalm chapter 19, and it talks about the encouragement, the comfort of the Scriptures, the, the conviction of the Scriptures. These, these are things that encourage us by the Word. Do you come on Sunday morning ready when you gather with other Christians? Do you come ready to be encouraged by the Word of God, or do you come kind of waiting to see what might happen? Yeah, I mean, you, you know that when you're prepared for something, you get more out of it. Like this is just whether it's a, you know, a, a, a football game that you go to, and if you know who the players are on the team and the team that they're uh, facing off against and some of the stats on that team and what the both teams' records are, like when you go into something prepared, you get more out of it. And I think many of us, we kind of roll into Sunday morning exhausted and weary, and maybe there's nothing to be done for that, but we are totally unprepared for the fact that we, we actually might hear from God this morning. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you as much as is possible for you to come ready to be encouraged by the Word of God. Almost every single week, whether it's on Facebook or on an email or even in the bulletin that you've received ahead of time, there is the passage that we're going to be looking at together on Sunday. You, you can come spiritually ready to receive from God's Word. Physically, we can come ready to receive from God's Word. I, I've said it before. Sunday morning begins 
Saturday night. That's when Sunday morning begins. And so getting a little sleep, a little extra sleep on Saturday night that gets you ready to receive from God on Sunday morning, it's a wise thing. We should be people who, are co- who come ready to receive the words of God from God Himself. And we need to be people who are ready to speak the words of God that strengthen and encourage each other. Right? The, the early church gathered together to do these things. And so, so one of the ways that we're encouraged, that we are encouraged by words. Another thing that we see here this morning, and I, I love this. This is something I think we forget, especially when we think about someone like the Apostle Paul. Right? And we think that the Apostle Paul is this unflinching, um, you know, monument of a man, of, of perfect Christianity, and he is kind of like the Lone Ranger who is, he's just, he's got it under control all by himself, and he doesn't really need anybody else, and anybody else that's along with him is just kind of along for the ride, but that he's, he's the main show. But as you read through Paul's writings, and as you read through even how Paul travels, you see that Paul is desirous of and desperate for Christian brothers and sisters in his life. He's not just dragging them along. They are there for him and for each other. And the handful of times that you find Paul by himself, whether in prison or in different ministry contexts, you, you pick up from, uh, from uh, passages that describe that. He's calling upon, send so-and-so to me. Have them bring the parchments. Have them bring the scrolls. I, I need his, his friendship involved in my life. Paul, even here, is traveling in a group. If you look at verses 3 and following, you see that Paul is naming a bunch of people that are part of his party that are going to Jerusalem to bring the offering to the brothers and sisters that are gathered there at Jerusalem. And notice that Paul does not have a bunch of other people that are just like him. He's got different races and different kinds of people from different cities and different towns that are along with him. And these are a bunch of hard names that are hard to say, right? Um, in verse 4, Sopater the Berean and Pyrrhus, sorry, I lost my place, accompanied him. And, and then those are the Berean guys, but then there's the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And then from Derby, there's a guy named Gaius and Timothy. And then the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, right? And these were all part of the group, the, 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 uh, the party, if you will, the traveling companions um, for Paul as he's traveling to Jerusalem. Who are your traveling companions? And I don't mean when you go on vacation. I mean as you walk through your life here, you know, the, your, your pilgrim journey here below, who, who are your traveling companions? Do you have traveling companions that you're traveling this road with? I hope you do. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out how? Two, two by two, Right? Um, the book of Ecclesiastes says that two are better than one. Why? Because if one falls, there's one there to help him up again. Navy SEALs are sent out at least in pairs of two, usually in teams. Right? There, there is the obvious recognition that you are significantly stronger 
exponentially stronger when you have someone else there with you to walk. It, it's, like, it's like the job, you know, if you, if you have to do it by yourself, it's going to take five hours. But if you have one more person, you can get it done in one hour. It, it, they didn't just double, like they exponentially increased your ability to get that job done. Brothers and sisters, spiritually, that is absolutely true. We need the encouragement of, of our brothers and sisters. And many of us have testimonies in our life where we were low, we were discouraged, we didn't want to go on, we weren't thinking truth, and a friend came along and spoke truth into our life, or they just came alongside us with an arm around us, and that is what God used in our lives to give us the, give us the strength that we need to carry on and to, to go on for the Lord. Paul isn't a lone ranger, and neither should we. But we often keep people away from us because we're scared. We kind of want to keep people just far enough away that they don't really see the real us. We don't want to be hurt. We've been hurt by people before, and we don't want it to happen again. It would be unusual if there would be anyone in this room who hasn't had that experience. You let someone in, and they hurt you, and the obvious answer is this, I'm not letting that happen again. We also shut ourselves off completely from the encouragement that that person could bring. We know this to be true, right? You'll never know love unless you're open to the possibility of getting hurt. Your spouse is probably the one who has hurt and disappointed you more deeply than anyone else. And is also probably the one who has most profoundly helped and strengthened you in your life. That's how this thing works. There has to be the ability to be vulnerable, to really know and be known. And brothers and sisters, the only thing that allows us to have that level of transparency with each other is a clear understanding of the gospel. Where you really understand, I'm far worse of a sinner than I will ever understand, and there's no way that I can completely communicate to you just how bad I am. If you think that I'm bad, you don't know the half of it. If you think that I'm a, whatever, bad spouse, bad employer, bad husband, bad pastor, what, you know, whatever the thing is, you don't know the half of it. And the gospel makes it, a safe place to be a sinner. And if that sounds scandalous, then you're beginning to understand how the gospel works. The gospel makes it, it doesn't mean we tolerate sin. It doesn't mean we say, oh, just sin and let grace abound. God forbid. And yet the gospel begins to give us a place of safety with each other. There's a whole lot more I could say about that. I've, I've said it in, in over the months and weeks and years past. You'll never know love unless you are open to the possibility of being hurt. And there's only one person who will love you and never hurt you. Did you know that? There's only one person. There's only one person who will love you and never hurt you. It's not your spouse. It's not this pastor. It's not your best friend. Jesus is the only one who loves you and will never hurt you. And catch this. Jesus loves you by being hurt by you. 
Jesus will love you perfectly and never hurt you. And he shows his love for you by having been hurt by you. You turned your back on him. You have rebelled. You were born a rebellious sinner against him. And yet, when you see him arms spread hanging on the cross, you see his love for you. He has already proven he's willing to be hurt by you. And he is willing to give you his love. Jesus is the only one who will ever love us perfectly. Brothers and sisters, make sure that you're walking through life with him as a travel companion, first and foremost. But it doesn't mean that we can only have relationship with Jesus. We can have meaningful and loving relationships because we know what it is like to be loved by Jesus. If you can't love and trust others, it's because you don't understand the love of Jesus. And I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that you don't understand how, but I, excuse me, but I am saying that you don't understand how safe you are in the love of Christ. When we understand how we have been loved by Christ and now we're to love others that way, we fully understand I'm going to love someone and of course at some point I'm going to disappoint them and they're going to disappoint me. They're not God. They aren't my Savior. They're never intended to be my Savior. It would be impossible for them to do so. And yet we look to other people hoping for the, the thing that only can come from Christ. And so when we're tempted to recoil from friendship or we're tempted to recoil from love or we're tempted to recoil from the involvement, the, 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 um, what feels like invasion from someone else, but it's really someone else trying to befriend us and trying to show love to us, and we find ourselves immediately kind of self-protecting because we don't understand how we've been loved by Christ. Brothers and sisters, you can receive deep and meaningful encouragement from other Christians as they walk this path, this journey with you. Paul found encouragement. He found encouragement in the words of God. The early church found encouragement in the words of God, and they found encouragement through friendship with one another. Number three, they found encouragement by feasting. Well, where are you getting that, Jeremy? Look in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them and, and so on and so forth. And then you look down in verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while. Now, this phrase, breaking bread together, throughout the New Testament, sometimes it's using to refer specifically to the Lord's Supper. Other times it's used to refer to just a meal that Christians were having together. Often when Christians gathered together, they did both. They celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and they enjoyed a meal together with one another. We love to eat, and that is part of being made in the image of God. There is coming a day where we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right, this through throughout the Bible, God's people are people who gather together with each other and eat things. Right, so obviously the Old Testament Israelites were Baptists because they feasted and had. I'm I'm kidding, right? They had their version of potlucks. I still don't know what the word potluck means or why we use it, um, but I'm I'm good with potluck. 
right? We love to do that. We love to feast with each other, right? We like, oh, sister so-and-so made this dish, and man, I love that so-and-so made dessert. They make the best desserts, right? He smoked it on the grill. Man, I can't wait to get some of that on my plate. We enjoy a meal where we uh, sit down with one another and fellowship with one another. And if you look through the Old Testament and you look through the New Testament, God's people are people who get together with each other and eat together. And it's not just simply so that we can get nourishment into our bodies in, in order to live physically. God expects that his people will gather together and thank him together for their daily bread and challenge and encourage and strengthen one another together during that time. When you sit down with other people, almost always when you join someone for a meal, you think in your mind, this is at least an hour. If you, join, if you, if you schedule lunch with somebody, you just automatically kind of assume, well, if we meet at noon, we'll eat until 1 o'clock. That's just kind of the way. Like We know we're going to have time with one another, and God wants us to have that time with one another where we are keenly aware together God has provided food for us and God has provided fellowship for us. This historically has been part of the Christian community and many of the scenes that we have with Jesus is him in homes and sharing meals with other people. So how often do you share a meal with Christian brothers and sisters? Some of you might think I'm not a good cook. I, I didn't ask how often do you cook. Or I'm not a good host. My house isn't set up for host. I'm not, I'm not asking that. How often do you get together with other Christians for the sake of enjoying a meal together? I actually believe this is, that this is an important part of what we do as Christians. It seems as though Christians gathering together to eat was even a weekly thing in the early church. And I'm not going to try to establish some kind of legalistic standard that you have to have a meal and it has to be on Sunday, and it has to be with X number of other Christians. But you, you need to have, as part of the rather regular rhythm of your Christian life, getting together with other Christians and eating together, and eating together for the purpose of communion with each other. They're, they're breaking bread together and surely enjoying their Christian fellowship with one another. So this encouraged by feasting and, and encouraged by fellowship, encouraged by communion, they're definitely celebrating the Lord's table together, the, the celebration of communion, this breaking of bread, right, where the broken bread reminds us of the broken body of Christ and the, the juice that they're drinking reminds them of the shed blood of Christ. They're getting together and they're remembering the work that Jesus has done for them. And when we gather together with other Christian families, we pray together. Maybe you sing a song together. Maybe you read a passage of Scripture together. Or I hope at least you talk about Jesus together. And we're remembering, we're communing with one another because of what Christ has done. And when we gather, at least monthly, to celebrate the communion together here at church, that's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. The work that Jesus did where God, where Jesus himself bore the wrath of God. His broken body and His shed blood were done for you. So when we gather in feasts and we gather in communion, we're gathering to remember those things together. This is what part of what encouraged the early believers. And when we celebrate communion, obviously we're celebrating the, the death of Jesus, but Jesus didn't stay dead, did He? He didn't stay dead. 
That brings us to point number four. When we gather together like the early church gathered together, we encourage, we're encouraged by remembering the resurrection. We're encouraged by remembering the resurrection. And here we get to what you've been waiting for us to get to here this morning, the most interesting part of these verses, right? Verse 8. Well, let me back up in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. So Paul's aware that he's getting ready to leave, and those brothers and sisters that are gathered together there are aware that Paul is getting ready to leave. And they, they, they get it. They realize Paul is an apostle, right? He's, he's the evangelist who's going throughout the known world of the day. We want to hear what this guy has to say, right? So imagine your favorite preacher of the day, right? Um... Imagine John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, you know, some, some preacher um, that you really enjoy listening to. And imagine that he comes to your living room. He comes to your house and you have dinner together. And if he's talking, you're probably going to sit there and listen, right? You've had conversations with people like this before where all of a sudden you look at your watch and you go, oh my goodness, it's 11 o'clock. It's midnight. I didn't know it was this late. I was really enjoying this conversation um, with you. This is likely the scene that's, that's playing out here uh, with Paul. And they're in this home, and they're up on the third, floor, uh, the, the third floor here in this home. And I think it's interesting, some of the descriptions that we get. There were many lamps in the upper room. These lamps were either some kind of oil-burning lamp or maybe some kind of torch that was a pitch, you know, covered in pitch. And so there's, there's a lot of lamps and um, uh, and, uh, you know, flames in this room. And a lot of commentators have suggested the reason that we're even, I mean, why are we told this? One of the reasons that we're told this is that, like, you can imagine kind of a stuffy room where the oxygen is being burned out by these flames. It's late at night, right? There's the, the um, kind of uh, the flicker of the, the flames is, is having, like, a hypnotic effect on on those that are in there, right? And so young Eutychus, right? I mean, th- two thumbs up for this young kid being there, you know, Clayton Peavy's age, and Clayton's sitting over in the, in the windowsill, right? And dad's awake. He's tuned in to what Paul is saying, and Clayton nods off, and dad probably thinks, that's ah, all right. You know, I mean, he, he's, he's hung with us a long time. And the next thing we know, we hear together this, well, I don't know what we hear if we hear, ah, or if we just, if he stays asleep the whole way down and hits the ground and everybody suddenly realizes like, oh, oh, and, and like we realize we know what just happened. Eutychus just fell out of the window. One of my favorite books on preaching, on the topic of preaching, is titled Saving Eutychus, right? And it's a book to pastors on, look, Preach in such a way that people don't fall asleep and fall out the window, right? You want to make sure that you, you can keep people's attention. And so it's kind of a humorous title to a book, but it, it really is one of my favorite books on preaching. Um, so here we, we see that this young boy, Eutychus, in verse 8, uh, verse 9, sitting there in the window, falls into a deep sleep as Paul, and <laughs> I love the word our English translations have it, Paul talked still longer. I mean, you can almost hear Luke being like, yeah, I mean, this was one of Paul's moments. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. The the physician Luke writes out in plain 
Greek. Eutychus died. This is what happened to Eutychus. And so then Paul goes and, and went down and he bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. What Old Testament stories sound kind of like this? Do you remember a couple of healings in the Old Testament that played out kind of like this? You remember Elijah and Elijah both have experiences like this, right? Where the, the, um, uh, the oh shoot, now I can't remember, the widow, what's that? The Shunammite son is one. There's one other. I should have written them down here. I thought I'd remember them. But where, where Elijah spreads himself out over the body of the boy and God revives that child. And surely, as Paul is doing this, I mean, these are people who are biblically informed. They're watching Paul do this and they're thinking, oh, like this is, this is just like the stories that we've read about. Like, let's see if this works because this is going to be impressive. This is going to be awesome. And sure enough, God raises Eutychus. And I love the way the story carries on. Because in that moment, most of us would have been like, wow. And that would have kind of been the end of the worship service. And everybody, you know, maybe there would have been a celebration or they would have gone home. But Paul apparently hasn't eaten yet. They had gathered together to break bread and it appears as though everyone else has eaten. But Paul's talking, talking, talking. Verse 11, Paul says, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. Where are the biscuits? Right? When Paul had gone up uh, uh, um, yeah, and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a little while longer until daybreak. And then he departed. Well, what's going on here? I, I could, like I said, I could say a lot about the dangers of falling asleep in church. And you could say a lot about the dangers of long sermons. And we'd both be right. That's not the point here. Paul is getting ready to leave, and apparently he's got a lot to say. And the brothers and sisters who've gathered here seem to be eagerly gathered. Most of them. Eutychus. Um, we see falls to his death. And in a manner that's keeping with Elijah and Elisha, Paul spreads his body over the young boy and brings him to life. Brothers and sisters, God's power raises people from the dead. And spiritually, that's what happens every time someone comes to know Christ as their Savior. There is a, there is a life that is given, that, that the person is born again, they're converted, they're saved, whatever term you want to use there. And just like Elijah and Elisha and Paul have raised people from the dead, Jesus raises people from the dead, and Jesus was raised from the dead. And there is no question that these brothers and sisters that are gathered here as they watch Eutychus brought back to life again, there is no question that Paul reminds them of their great king who had been hung on a cross and crucified and three days later was raised to new life again. No doubt in my mind whatsoever that this is part of what Paul continues talking with them about. They've just seen a physical resurrection, and Paul reminds them, remember, our Savior, he died and was, he, he didn't fall three stories, but he was in the ground for three days, and he was raised to life again. And just like that, you too, brothers and sisters, 
can anticipate once your body dies like Eutychus's, once your body dies, you, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, you too will be raised again. That's what they celebrated then. That's what we celebrate now. This is an encouraging truth. Look, this is an encouraging truth. We are going to walk through horrific experiences. Nine-year-old boys get in car accidents and die. And I don't have words to talk about it. My wife and I have shed tears over it, like not really knowing how to talk about it. I've tried talking about it with my children, reminding them of the importance that they put their faith in a resurrected Savior because none of us know what a day may bring forth. We live in a world where there are surgeries and there are cancers and there are diseases and there are wars and there are disasters and there are things that we have a difficulty, we have difficulty explaining to our children or we refuse to explain to our children because they're too young. There are things that we have a hard time understanding ourselves and there are things that we choose to ignore because they're just too horrible. We live in a world that's fallen and broken, but it will not remain this way forever. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is there being reminded of by the resurrection of Eutychus, is something, brothers and sisters, that will give, that must give you hope. This world is fallen and broken, and there are going to be more Sundays where we make announcements like the one we made this morning regarding our brothers and sisters, the Drew, fam the Drew family. And there are going to be tragedies that will happen here in Liberty Baptist. And if we live long enough, we're all going to die. But that's not the end of our story. And that's an encouraging thing. That's why a believer can face a deathbed and not sorrow as one who has no hope. We celebrate when we gather on Sundays, like the brothers and sisters here who have gathered in this third story room, we gather to celebrate the rescuer, our king, our hope. The perfect living word. Remember, we're encouraged by word. We're encouraged by friendship. We're encouraged by feasting. And we're encouraged by the resurrection. Well, let's walk through those four things again. We're encouraged by word. Who is the perfect living word? Jesus Christ. We're encouraged by friendship. Who is the perfect friend? The friend that sticks closer than a brother? Jesus Christ. We're encouraged by celebrating and feasting. Who will sit us down for a marriage feast, celebrating marriage to him himself. Jesus Christ will. We are encouraged by remembering our resurrection. And why is our resurrection certain? Because Jesus resurrected. Do you, do you see, like, it is not hard to see that this whole thing is about Jesus. We make much of Jesus Christ. We're not here just to celebrate a list of rules and to go and live morally upstanding lives because we fail most of the week at that. We pretend pretty well on Sundays, but most of the week, most of us fail pretty miserably most of the time. At least I do, right? Me and Billy and the rest of y'all might be doing better than Billy and me, right? But, but thank God there was a perfect one who lived for me and died for me and was raised for me. And so who is my trust in? Me? Forget about it. 
My trust is in him, the one who lived for me, died for me, and was raised for me. And so when we get together on Sunday, when we limp in on Sunday, right, when we limp in from the last Monday through Saturday, keenly aware of our failure and our fallings and our difficulties in the broken world that we live in, we gather together and here's what we do. We say, hey, remember Jesus? Remember the living word? Remember the friend that sticks closer than a brother? Remember we will be wed to him someday? Remember that he has been raised and we too will be raised? Like That's what's encouraging us. That's what Paul and the brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago were encouraging themselves with. And that's what we today, this morning, September 27th, 2020, that's what we encourage ourselves with here this morning. In word and friendship, and feasting, and in resurrection. Are you encouraged? Are you you an encouraged Christian? If you're discouraged this morning, let me encourage you to turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Can you, Angie, can you play that? Is that a song you can play? Um, Oh, it's not in the hymnal. Okay. Let's try it. Let's try it. I may have, I may have really put um, myself in the doghouse for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> what? Can someone look it up for me? Just the, just, the, um, just the chorus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You may even know it. I don't have a hymnal with me, but I think I know the chorus. What is it? 340. And is it just the chorus? Let me, let me get a hymnal. Number 340. It's just the chorus. Man, we need the rest of it in here. Let's sing it through once with the piano, and then we'll sing it through once a cappella. And let me see if there's anything else that we need to remember before we conclude this morning. This is going to be our conclusion together this morning, okay? Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, let's sing this to each other. Let's sing it to ourselves. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus as we leave together this morning.